This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 118th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is innovative technology that enables talent. I'm joined by Jim Wilson, who, along with Paul Doherty, is the co-author of Radically Human, How New Technology is Transforming Business and Shaping Our Future. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Jim is the Global Managing Director of Thought Leadership and Technology Research at Accenture Research based in San Francisco. Jim has spoken to business audiences worldwide. He's also a longtime contributor to the Harvard Business Review and has been cited as one of the 50 top business innovators by Codex. Welcome to the show, Jim. Great to be here, Dan. Thank you. Absolutely. So let's dive in. Uh, What's this book about? Well, you know, uh, when we when we started the book, we were really interested in the evolution of artificial intelligence and how human and machine collaboration was changing the workplace and society uh, and really kind of building on some of the core concepts of our last book called Human Plus Machine. At that time, Dan, though, there was no a global pandemic or disruption of uh, the way that we do business of life and of commerce. But then, of course, the virus intervened and we really saw the convergence of uh, a few inflection points uh, within a matter of months that changed our thinking in the way that we formulated the book. Um, First of all, Dan, we saw a marked uh, speed up Uh, in the evolution of business during the pandemic, uh, what we refer to in the book as the great acceleration. And uh, two studies that that we did at that time toward the beginning of the pandemic really found uh, significant evidence of this speed up. Uh, You know, first of all, the pace of technology adoption uh, soared by about 70 percent 
compared to just before the pandemic. And, you know, first time adoption of digital and AI and cloud and related technologies at that point uh, averaged uh, about 63%. So put another way, for any given technology uh, a firm had not adopted before COVID struck, there was a 63% chance that they adopted it during the pandemic. And they often did it in a hurry. Um, As one chief digital officer of, of a European food manufacturer told us, IT changes that we plan to undertake in 12 to 18 months occurred in a matter of days. So we really saw this significant uh, acceleration. And moreover, during that first year of the pandemic, we saw that digital leaders increased uh, their, their advantage that they had even before the pandemic. They increased their growth rates uh, over digital laggards. Uh, from about 2x before the pandemic to 5x uh, after those initial months of the pandemic. And they proved that IT, information technology, is not just about efficiency, but it's an innovation and growth engine when intentionally combined with good leadership and human talent. So that's kind of the first thing, Dan, that we saw. The second really important thing, and we talk a lot about this in the book, is we saw human behavior change uh, scale at, you know, kind of globally, there were these these fundamental behavior changes. But in many cases, that scaling was uneven. In other words, the, the pandemic forced a change for billions of people to change their relationship to home, to work, and to each other. And we saw the emergence of new work environments and new habits. So the pandemic uh, also exposed uh, kind of a further digital divide between those who could use technology to do their job and those who really couldn't, a lot of those frontline workers and that sort of thing that uh, allowed us to continue uh, on living uh, and, and working at home. So we were really interested in this topic of technology and human behavior change at at a global scale. And then finally, one quick point uh, that I alluded to earlier, we were really interested in that evolution of intelligent technology and AI uh, since our last book. So companies around the world really were finding that they had to bring uh, outdated infrastructure up to the present if they wanted to innovate and if they wanted to apply artificial intelligence, uh, particularly over the past couple of years. Uh, For example, uh, one study that we did in 2021, and this informed the book, uh, showed that 34% of global business leaders were citing legacy infrastructure challenges as one of the key impediments to business innovation. So we're really interested in how companies can use new advances in chips, in hardware, in data engineering to build new applications and so on, um, particularly during the pandemic. And of course, that this trend has continued, uh, you know, since those early months of the pandemic. Sure. No, I think that's obviously a great spur for for writing the book, a great uh, explanation, justification. Uh, I was well aware of the um, great resignation or reshuffle in terms of people adjusting their 
work behavior or human behavior vis-a-vis the, the workplace, but uh, the great acceleration uh, in technology ad- adaptation was um, is new to me. That's, that's interesting stuff. So um, going to the title of the book, Radically Human, uh, what, what does that mean? Can you kind of unpack that for us as a term? Yeah, I, it's a great question, Dan. You know, so by radically human, we're talking about technologies and strategies that are rooted in human capabilities, but are also revolutionary. So both senses, you know, rooted and revolutionary. So, you know, let me unpack that a bit more. So by rooted in human capabilities, we mean that it's inspired by and engineered based on the human brain and human emotions and human social abilities uh, and how we understand and think and communicate as human beings. So, you know, one example, and we've seen some, uh, you know, a lot of coverage of uh, natural language technologies uh, over the past year. You know, the New York Times has interestingly done a number of pieces on uh, NLP and um, some of the advances with um, GPT-3, as it's called, which is a natural language technology. Uh, other technologies here, you know, include like uh brain-inspired artificial intelligence and uh, privacy-preserving machine learning. In many cases, these technologies uh, feel more natural to interact with. For instance, you know, using our voice or human gesture to prompt the machine to perform a task on our behalf. So that's what we mean by rooted uh, in everyday human experiences and human capabilities. So it's getting easier to interact with these intelligent systems. Um, you know, that, if, that of course includes and must uh, reflect not only our abilities, but also some of our uh, fallibilities, if you will. And we make this point in the book. So, you know, just as kind of behavioral economics have incorporated human fallibility into economics, the dismal science, we're seeing technology innovators are now taking into account biases and other human frailties that have crept into artificial intelligence systems sometimes at scale. So it's important not just to be an optimist about technology, but when you're designing technologies, also think about human fallibilities, human limitations, and so on. Um, The second sense of radically human, Dan, uh, is revolutionary. By that, we mean that we're not interested in just incremental designs and incremental improvements to the last generation of technology. So we're not talking about so-so technologies, as they're sometimes called, that simply replace an existing task or work task with an algorithm, but don't actually enhance productivity. So we're talking yeah, about- not, trans- not transformative. Yeah, exactly. So we, we're looking for those more transformative examples. Um, And, you know, as the economic research shows, as our own uh, research shows, these more revolutionary technologies are the ones that actually enhance overall productivity and prosperity and actually can enhance job creation at uh, at the macro level. I think the risk is when you're not being radical enough, and we and we make that point. So, in a in a sense, the technologies that we're trying to uh, give a vision of, and you know, give examples of in the book, 
are good for humanity in a sense. And they're certainly good for workers when they're applied thoughtfully. So natural language technologies like GPT-3, you know, are already showing a significant promise to transform the value of uh, 51 of 73 job categories that we analyze. So a lot of jobs can be augmented uh, and made more creative through the use of these types of technologies. Uh, no, no I, I like I like where you're trying to move to, where you're hoping that everything is evolving to. Um, you know, making it easier to interact. Obviously, is going to help resolve to some degree the digital divide. Um, I'm a big fan of behavioral economics and accounting for the fact that people do have blind spots and uh, trying to work with them as opposed to ignore them. So that that's exciting stuff. Um, so kind of staying with the the idea of being transformative and, and innovative with uh, IT and how the budgets are utilized. I wanted to go to one specific. I was a little intrigued. You mentioned a company, I think it's a company called MVI, and you said that they were working to create superior customer experiences. I just thought maybe this was a chance to ground it in some uh, particulars, some details. Um, I don't know if you can summon that from the book. You probably wrote it a bit ago. But um, if you had anything to offer listeners as to that or maybe some other example of where this really plugs in and makes a difference, um, both for the employee but uh, as well for, for the customer. You know, one of the one of the points, Dan, that we make um, with MVI, but all companies, you know, on that on that point um, is that I, we generally think about what we're innovating at in terms of a physical product or a, a knowledge intensive service. But we do think that you need to um, you need to think at the level of building experiences. Uh, often digital experiences, or even now we're hearing more about metaverse experiences. Uh, And companies need to move from kind of building disappointing, often disappointing experiences when you think when you have to call into a bank, for instance, and how frustrating that can be. So how do you you reimagine and build experiences that uh, can be more tuned in to what customers uh, or even your your workforce is looking for, experiences that can be more empowering and rewarding and and responsible. I think one example, and we'll see how the the platform evolves, we talk a bit about TikTok uh, in there, which is a a new digital platform. Uh, And TikTok, the TikTok experience is designed to consistently and intelligently tune in to exactly what you want to see at that moment. You know, so if you go on to TikTok in the morning, uh, if you go onto the app in the afternoon, you're going to get a kind of different experience. And interestingly, in 20 minutes, you can see on that app more than 100 different video clips. And during that time, you're actually teaching and tailoring TikTok's algorithms to exactly what you want to see. And so I think that's one of the, that I think they, they give kind of a best practice of how to, uh, how to think about the, the, uh, the business offerings and the innovations of the future. Uh, and, you know, again, we get, we have a full chapter kind of talking about how companies like MVI or TikTok or others are constructing experiences. 
Yeah, no, I, I love that focus. Joe Pine, uh, author, co-author of Experience Economy, is a good friend of mine. And uh, before I started my company, I was working for a company called Experience Engineering as kind of one of their IP people. So, um, you know, experiences and emotions, you can't have an experience that doesn't deliver an emotion uh, as well, uh, whether it's favorable or unfavorable, but it, it's going to happen. Um, so it's it's big stuff. So, And part of that, of course, is this movement now to the employee side. So I, I want to come back to experiences, but maybe move to, to talent for a moment. Um, so it sounds very much, both from the book and from your comments so far, that uh, uh, I guess I'll put it this way, your heart is in the right place, but um, there's obviously some ominous things out there as well. There was a recent New York Times piece on employee surveillance, essentially, to boost productivity. How are we going to make sure that technology is, uh, to use your phrase, radically human as opposed to radically inhumane, unfortunately, at times? You know, I I think I might step, take a, a, a bit of a step back there, Dan, and, you know, put your question in the context of the evolution of technology. I think, you know, we talk uh, about this in quite a bit in the book, I think with, and we talk about three stages of technology. And in that first stage of technology, we, which we call the era of device intelligence, we see that in many cases, you know, um, we, a technologist and CIOs and companies kind of expect workers to um, to adapt to the machine. So, in a certain sense, the machine is a is kind of an alien force. Um, uh, in in short, machines can do what they're programmed to do. So, when you interact with them, uh, it's always on the machines terms. So if you think about kind of early desktop computing or even industrial robots, you know, if you go into a factory, um, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s, and even before then, uh, the robot systems are literally dangerous and they're behind a fence. And, you know, there's still examples of that today, but we've seen significant evolution in intelligent technologies uh, since then, uh, you know, kind of going into the past 10 years um, into what we call the second era of technology, which is the, the era of data intelligence. And here we're starting to see kind of a leveling humans and machines beginning to work in collaboration in the workplace, in industrial settings, uh, the rise of more collaborative robotics, for example. So you start to see that technologists are starting to think more about the human talent, about the, the folks that are using these uh, these intelligent systems like robots. In this stage, though, it's all about big data and making machines more powerful for analytics and machine learning. Uh, and we've seen this, this, uh, this huge push, you know, starting in the late, um, you know, early 2010s. And, uh, but really at that point, it's not, there's not really a clear sense of the challenges that big data presents to society uh, or of the limitations of big data systems. So what we're trying to do in this book for both human talent, for employees, uh, but also for the people designing these systems is to to show that there's opportunity 
uh, with intelligent technology to kind of put the human above the machine in a sense. So our book is really giving a vision of what this stage of technology, this new emerging stage is all about. Humans are now in charge and people's intelligence, you know, human talents, intelligence can teach machines to do more. Um, so synthetic data, for instance, natural language technologies, even the metaverse, we're starting to see people really taking a human-centric view toward building these. So this, this final stage when we're talking about talent is you know, really going to be radical in both senses of the word that I uh, mentioned earlier, both revolutionary uh, and, and rooted, um, rooted in human experience. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's an excellent summary, and I and I like the progression, and I very much hope it's going to happen. I mean, you have the, you know, thanks to Accenture and your contacts and the conferences that you speak at, do you have a sense that um, the the leaders who are going to you know be responsible for how these the technology gets deployed and how it gets adopted, um, are they on board with that vision of moving into that third and crucial to my mind crucial phase? Um, it's a really good question. And we do, I mean, one of the things that we saw with our last book, Human Plus Machine, is that technology change is not, you know, simply something happening out there in the business zeitgeist that business leaders don't have control over. It is really uh, a, um, a function of mindset and senior uh, leadership decision making. But business leaders need and have control to make the right sets of decisions. They've got the capacity to reinvent the business. And as I mentioned earlier, they often have to do it quickly. But they've got, you know, they, they can decide whether to uh, just try to automate yesterday's process, processes and ways of working, or whether they can, whether they want to augment workers and re and reinvent processes. Um, so I do think that right now we see uh, about 10% of business leaders really get it. And they're showing the way for a lot of other companies, you know, in terms of uh, making deliberate decisions to apply these technologies, to test them, to see what's working and then to scale them. But it's not just something that's happening, right? It's actually a function of mindset and leadership decision-making, we believe. Yeah, no, I very much agree with you. It's a matter of the mindset. I mean, because you have a wonderful statistic in the book. You said that the willingness and ability to be innovative at work is six times higher in more equal cultures, which to me really made the point that the trying to enable the workers, trying to make it a more equal culture, more inclusive, more empowerment. Uh, if if the technology can do those things, then uh, obviously uh, attracting talent, retaining talent, um, you know, it all kind of starts to swim together. Yeah, I think if you look at uh, an example that we we discuss in the book, so Capital One is obviously, you know, it's a bank, but it really sees itself as a technology company. And Capital One has a lot of great programs to help their talent evolve to become uh, more uh, fluent using technologies. And by fluent, we mean, you know, they're not just able to use it as solo practitioners, but they can actually speak to each other uh, around opportunities to innovate with new technology. They have what's called CODA, for Capital One 
Developer Academy, which is a six-month program followed by, uh, I think it's a two-year on-the-job training uh, for using and designing and uh, building technology. And they have programs also kind of focused on cloud and AI and analytics. But that program, um, CODA, isn't just you know, for people coming out of university with a computer science degree, you could have a background in sociology or a background in marketing, and you can learn, you can get involved in these programs at Capital One. I think, you know, getting, you know, just building on that stat you just mentioned, Dan, I think if you look at the economic literature, or if, you know, you see that for every dollar spent on machine learning technology, Companies may need to spend about nine dollars on intangible human capital. So that that means you know, um, you know, process change, re, retraining and upskilling the workforce, and so on. So in a lot of ways, you're going to get the most leverage, and you're going to get the, the the biggest bang for the buck, if you will, by really focusing on your people. That is, if you want to do new things and you really want to innovate and grow the company. Certainly. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think digital literacy, emotional literacy, you call it TQ technology, smarts. I mean, all, all of those things are going to have to work together. And, and then there's another element to moving to the chapter on trust. You mentioned some research done by Susan Fisk and Chris Malone and that they had seen two really important factors to build trust, which is evaluating others and programs and probably even, frankly, technology in terms of uh, its ability to protect, promote, enhance warmth and competency. I I was really intrigued by that. Is there anything more you can share from their writings and how you see that informing uh, how you wrote the book and what your vision is for the future with radically human technology? You know, we we see that there are there are two big takeaways uh, from the book. Um, one is around strategy and strategy innovation. And the second is around trust. So let, let's talk about trust first. Um, you know, we're seeing that companies are really realizing that they need to prioritize trust when they use new technologies. I think one thing that we saw uh, as we were um, doing our initial uh, research for our last book, Human Plus Machine, is there was a lot of optimism, but there wasn't as much thinking about how do we sust- how do we bake trust into the system in a sustainable way. Now we're starting to see companies realizing, okay, well, bias can creep into the system. Uh, sometimes these systems are uh, not not very transparent and so on. So now we're seeing that nearly three quarters of leading companies are focused on and investing uh, on differentiating their offerings based on trust. Now at a basic level, that means security and transparency and fairness and, and privacy. You know, those are, those are really kind of hygiene factors, if you will. Yeah, no, it's a good term. Yeah, yeah. So the but the other kind of discovery that we made it, when we were doing the research for this book is that software and machines also need to be informed by human behavior, uh, by humanity. So that's kind of a a fifth uh, hygiene factor. Uh, if, if so, if we're going to trust a machine, there needs to be kind of that human element. So 
Uh, we talk about some uh, several examples in the book of, of how companies are baking trust into their systems. So if you look at uh, a chip manufacturer out here in, uh, in the Bay Area called NVIDIA, uh, NVIDIA is now developing uh, self-driving car systems that learn by emulating human driver behavior, which drivers actually find more trustworthy. Um, also, they're incorporating explainable artificial intelligence into that system. So the system can actually tell uh, the engineers which human behaviors it's learning from. But I, but we're beginning to realize that when you're building a system such as the self-driving car system, perfect is not what you're necessarily going for. You have to have that that dimension of humanity baked into the system. So, you know, Davidi and others are, are, are built, are baking humanity into the system in order to try to uh, enhance trust. Um, you know, I, I think just building on that point, Dan, uh, in the past few years, there's been a lot of research uh, on the phenomenon of algorithm aversion, which means that people are going to avoid AI services or AI recommendations if they don't trust the robot or the algorithm. I think consumer companies like Netflix have understood this well, and they really get they get their recommendation uh, algorithms just right. But you know, we're starting to see um, kind of a Netflix-like approach come into other places. So uh, in the book, we show companies how to move from kind of algorithm aversion to algorithm appreciation. And certainly, you know, circling back to your question, security, transparency, privacy, and that sense of humanity are really going to be key ingredients for algorithm for moving companies to bi- to uh, building services that have um, um, that that consumers really embrace that that show um, where consumers have algorithm appreciation uh, and trust. No, no, I think that's a good answer because otherwise, of course, once once uh, plagued with the critique raised very uh, cogently in uh, surveillance capitalism, that the technology, if it's not doing the things you just mentioned, uh, could see be seen as more of a, a threat than a help, which brings us back to trust and the fundamental question: Are there to help me or hurt me? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so one last question before we run out of time. I did want to come back to experiences. And speaking of being very human, I was really touched by an uh, instance you give of, if I'm getting it right, memory lane, which is trying to deal with social isolation because loneliness is is very human condition. And here's technology trying to resolve or help, you know allay that to some extent. I don't know if you can go into that example, just want to speak more broadly about experiences, but I didn't want to end the interview without bringing us there. Yeah, I think memory lane is a great example. Um, I think one of the the things that we're seeing is we need to have a a broader view and we need to, uh, of experience when when we're designing strategies, but we also need to get really specific. Um, I think memory lane is the is an example of kind of how of a, a company that is uh, making experiences more uh, empowering. I think you know um, we we have we also talk about um, you know another company called Events as well, which is kind of in that um, in that ballpark. So you know while the Americans uh, with Disabilities Act from 1990. 
um, didn't explicitly mention websites. We're seeing now that companies have really been challenged to make uh, their uh, their websites more accessible. So the mission of Evinced is to help companies revamp their websites to become more accessible to people with disabilities. So they're they're using sophisticated, um, you know, computer vision and machine learning systems to analyze websites uh, and to code to really assess whether, uh, where and how companies can revamp that online experience to make it empowering for, for instance, to people that are blind. Um, we're also seeing examples of, uh, you know, experiences where companies have to innovate to make them more responsible. Um, you know, uh, social and, uh, you know, social platforms in particular are now testing features that they call humanization prompts that are aimed to improve the conversational health of those platforms. And that's certainly something that we want to see more of and on all the big uh, social media platforms these days. Um, during one test on one of the platforms that we looked at, about 10% of uh, English-speaking Android phone users saw shared interests and mutual followers of the accounts that they were replying to. Uh, and the idea there is, you know, if you realize that you have something in common with someone, you're much more likely in a social platform and a social experience to behave in a, in a kinder, more humane way in your interaction and in your uh, social media uh, replies and so on. But, you know, getting to your point, Dan, you really, you know, um, you, you want to think about experiences in terms of, you know, building empowering experiences, rewarding experiences, and, and making them responsible as well. And you need to think across all those dimensions. Yeah. The, the t so the technology can help people re realize their potential and also connect us more effectively. We're so isolated in this society at times um, that it's, it's nice if it can, like Memory Lane is doing, trying to bring people together nicely. I, I want to thank you, Jim, so much for your, your time today uh, and for being my guest here on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode 118 innovative technology that enables talent. Jim Wilson is, along with his colleague Accenture, Paul Doherty, the co-author of Radically Human, How New Technology is Transforming Business and Shaping Our Future. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from the historian Christian Lang, who said, technology is a useful servant, but a dangerous master. Until next time, Take care and be well.